Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and we just started uh, this new series walking through the book of Genesis, and uh, last week we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and uh, so this week we're going to look at the end, like the second half of chapter 2 into chapter 3, and then next week we're actually going to look at uh, chapters 4 through 6. Uh, and, and unpack, uh, this, this series is gonna take us to the end of the year. Alright, family, this, uh, this is gonna take us uh, all the way to December. And if we, uh, if the Lord leads, it could take us longer because we wanna make sure we do, uh, well going through this portion of scripture. And, uh, if you have never, well, it really doesn't matter. If you've read through Genesis before or if you haven't, my encouragement to you is to read along the same trajectory that we're going through it. So uh, last week we went through one and two. Uh, this week we're going to go through two and three. So uh, you can uh, reread chapter two or you can uh, just read chapter three or you can get a jump on next week with reading uh, portions of four through six. A great way to navigate this is to go along with how we're teaching and how we're opening this up together. Okay. Um, but as we as we step into this, it's going to the structure of this is going to look a little different because uh, what we're stepping into is a narrative. Everyone say narrative. And a narrative is there is a ton of narrative text in the Bible. And narrative just means that it's written in a way that it conveys a series of events happening together. And there's some sections of scripture uh, that we call epistles, which is just a fancy name for letters. A lot of the New Testament is written that way. But there's something really significant about a narrative. In fact, Jesus used narratives when he taught, and we call them parables. And the reason narratives are so powerful is because it paints a picture in your mind through which God communicates spiritual truth. And we learn so much about who God is and who we are called to be. And that's really the way I want us to recognize this and study Scripture. I want you to study Scripture to know God. I want you to study Scripture to know who God is. Too often we come to the Bible and we go, what can I get out of this? What can I get that's going to make my life better and it's going to make me happy and it's going to do well for me? And and, and in that case, um, we're really not worshiping God. We're worshiping who? Me, right? We're worshiping I, the God of myself. And to be honest with you, uh, the number one idol in the world is yourself. You are the one you are most prone to worship more than anything else. And when we recognize that, all of a sudden we start going, ooh, 
How should that be different? Well, it begins with better unpacking and handling the word of God. And that's our main idea we're going to see in Genesis 2 and 3 is this. So if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to get this. This truth that our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the word of God. Our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the word of God. How many of you um, would say, I would love to just constantly wage war on sin and evil in the world around me? Show me your hands. Come on. Now, there's only about 20% of you that raise your hand. So either you're shy or you're content with the wickedness around us. Now, really, how many of you would like to see evil and sin vanquished from around you? That's all right. That's better. We're getting there. Okay. The reality is every one of us, even people who are not a part of any church or faith believing group, they, they would say we have this desire for world peace We have this desire to see uh, evil rid and and people uh, doing good. Uh, but nobody has yet been able to uh, clearly bring about that happening in the world around us. Hence why we are exactly experiencing what we experience today. Our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the word of God. And we're going to see that today. Really how sin even came to be. And what I want, what, what you're going to see in this is that scripture reveals sin came to be because mankind fail, failed to rightly handle the word of God. And in fact, I still believe that truth is true today. And we actually memorized a couple of scriptures as a church family that focused on this. Psalm 119.11. It said what? So you can speak this with me as I start. Because I know many of, you, many of you know it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? Rightly handling the word of truth. And then we also memorized a passage in... Um, Oh, I just spaced. My mind just went blank. This is what happens. It's uh, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Woo! There it is. Galatians 5.16. Way to go, church family. This is where we need our help with, with one another. Let's say that together, okay? Ready? Here we go. Walk, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. These core truths, these biblical truths, point back to this same truth that we're going to see is from the beginning that our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the Word of God. So I want you to just stop a minute and picture this. Picture all of creation new, fresh. God has created all things in the heavens above and the earth below. He's spoken and it's brought into existence. And then, at the pinnacle of all of this, He says, let us make man in our own image. 
And from the dirt and dust of the ground, God forms mankind and breathes life into him. Now, mankind, experiencing perfect fellowship with Almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth. Beautiful, untainted by sin, producing abundantly without work or effort, and faithfully walking with God. Then in the midst of this, if we look at chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, God, in the midst of this, creates all things, creates man in his own image, and then gives one specific command to the man who we know as Adam. And life continues. But, in the midst of this, brothers, praise the Lord, God was not done creating yet. Amen? And what I mean by that is at this point, Adam is alone. And God looks down upon this and says, man needs a helper suitable for him. And my goodness, God, creator God, outdid himself when he gave us the gift of woman. And that's the beautiful picture of what we see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, as Adam awakes from this deep sleep and for the first time gazes upon this gift of God, this woman that God has created from him. And it says in verse 23, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. And then we see for the first time this pivotal passage on marriage that we so often hear quoted in verse 24. Therefore, in other words, in light of this great gift that's been given, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. My goodness. It cannot get any better than this, church. Perfected creation, perfected relationship in the midst of God's created world, community. Not simply with one another, but even more specifically with the Creator Himself. Pure, unhindered fellowship with God perfect peace and satisfaction. Then, along comes the serpent. I'm just curious, how many of you like snakes? A very small handful. Now, I want to point something out here, okay? Just kind of specifically, recognize in this that it calls it a serpent. 
And in fact, when we get to the later part of this section of scripture, one of the curses is that the serpent would crawl on its belly the rest of its life. I bring that up because you could speculate that the serpent at this point may have legs. I don't know. I wasn't there. All right. But we want to make sure we're using biblical language. So you're going to hear me use the language of serpent. In Genesis 3.1, look what it says. The serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, for a moment, I want us to back up a second because we need to recognize at this moment in time, has sin entered the world? Yes or no? No. Everyone say no. It is not. We're still in a perfect place with pure, untainted relationship with God. The serpent comes and it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Many people step into that passage and go, snakes have just always been evil. Now, while personally I may not disagree with you in that in my lifetime, I do not like them. If I ever run in with one, you're going to see me scream like a little girl and run away. Okay, that happened recently and thankfully no one was around to see it. I opened up a shed door to get a piece of equipment out and it slithered right across my foot. But I really resonated with a, a writer named Kent Hughes who wrote this book on Genesis. And I want you to hear what he says here because it brings us back to a place of recognizing what's taking place here. He says the surprise here is that the initiator of the dialogue is a talking snake. And more, it is not a bad snake because everything that God created, he called good. Neither is it a good snake gone bad. Sin had made no entrance into the world at this point. Its description as crafty or shrewd does not imply evil. The word has the idea of being wary of knowing when dangers lurk. The scriptures encourage the naive and simple to cultivate such an attitude of prudence. But if it is misused, it becomes gill or it becomes deceptive. This is a snake, a naturally shrewd creature under the control of Satan and a natural tool. So when we think about this, I want you to recognize that and think about the reality that It is not the serpent in and of itself that's committing the temptation you're about to see take place. But it's actually the deceiver, the one who deceives and seeks to draw away from God because everything that God created in the beginning is good. And he created it exactly as he intended to. Sin has tainted not just you and me but everything around us. The second part of verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what's interesting about this is we need to know a couple of things. This is what we're reading. This we need to we need to recognize a couple of things specifically, um, one in particular about who God is, because this temptation that the serpent communicates with the woman is a temptation to doubt who God is. 
and to question him. So the first thing we need to realize, going back to chapter 2, is God instructs very clearly. God makes his word known. And if we look at verse 16 of chapter 2, as we read before, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And he even gives the reason, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the reason I draw this out is because you and I easily fall into this trap of making the word of God significantly more complicated than it needs to be. And in fact, I've heard this over and over again. When I talk with people, I said, hey, what are you reading in your Bible? Oh, I don't really, I, you know, I bring my Bible to church. I don't really read my Bible all that much. Re- really? Why? Like what? Oh, I, I just really, it's, it seems really complicated. And it just kind of scares me away. I don't want to mess it up. Church family, the only way you're going to mess this up is if you don't read it. God's word has been made available to you that you can know who he is and what, he, what he's called you to do. Is there going to be portions of this that you read and you go, I'm not really sure I understand this. Yes, absolutely there is. And that's exactly why we should be faithfully in community with each other. That's a beautiful thing about authentic church community that centers around God's word. I love getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ and wrestling with God's word. Well, what, do you, what do you think this is? That's why we have these here cards for you. Get together and ask questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? How should I live? Wrestle with it. But if we overcomplicate it to the point that we just avoid it, we will never grow to be more like Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. Guess what? Jesus knew what the Father had asked of him. And so he faithfully lived in that. God is clear. God is not up there trying to deceive you and make things hard for you. He's made it very clear. We make it hard for ourselves. That's number one. Number two, I want you to recognize this truth. The serpent can only deceive. He cannot cause the man and the woman to sin. The enemy you face on a spiritual level cannot make you sin. That's your choice. Deceive, yes. Doubt? Yes. But make a choice? Uh Uh-uh. We tell this to our children from a very young age. Who are you responsible for? Well, they made me hit them. No, they didn't. And you know what? Again, I return to this idea that we are often act like a bunch of spiritual toddlers. How many times, whether it's on social media or something else, they made me. They, they made me do this to them. No, they didn't. You made that choice. Okay? The serpent in this narrative can only deceive. And the very first item the deceiver brings into question is the word of God. Did God actually say, 
church family, we must know what God actually said. The enemy actually uses the same tactic when he tempts Jesus in the New Testament. When he twists and brings into question what God actually said. Our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the word of God. Eve falters here. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now wait a minute. How often do we do this with something that we just, maybe we think is over the top. I, I heard another person illustrate it this way. Um, you and your friend Katie have been too noisy, so Katie will have to go home, is what this dad says to his daughter. Then his daughter runs to her mother crying. Daddy says, I can't ever have Katie over again. No. The boss calls in an employee who's been late several times and says, I think this is something you need to give attention to. It's important. And the employee walks out of the office and says to his co-workers, you know what that stuffed shirt said? If I'm late again, I'm fired. No. When we don't like a prohibition or a warning, we magnify its strictness. Eve does this when she says, we can't even touch it. That's not what God said. This is not rightly handling. God said, don't eat of this tree. Nowhere in there does God say, don't touch it. Yet the serpent jeers at this. Look at verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, at this point in the narrative, we actually see a shift. And up until now, there's been a dialogue that takes place. But now it almost shifts to a reflection where no words are spoken, but action is taken. When we, when, when, when faced with temptation, church family... Mankind has a choice between which that which is righteous and that which is sinful. And we see that wrestling take place. If you look at verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I want you to note a couple items in this section of the narrative. Eve weighs the situation and chooses to forsake the word of God. She sees that the tree is good for food. And it looked nice. It was a delight to the eye. And so she took of its fruit and she ate. Pet peeve moment, sidebar, okay? It does not say she ate an apple. (laughs) Totally beside the point, but just to clarify, when you see all these pictures of Adam and Eve in the garden, they're picking this bright red juicy apple. I'm like, it doesn't say that. 
It could have been a purple fruit. I don't know. It was a fruit. Could have been an apple. Doesn't say. All right. It could have been a tomato that looked like a fruit. It looked like a vegetable, but it was a fruit. Anyway, I digress. It was on a tree, right? It was on a tree. It wasn't a tomato. (laughs) But it may have not been an apple. Anyway, all right. I could get stuck on these sidebars all day, church. I can't do it. All right. Eve looks at this. He looks around. He chooses this. And she makes a decision to forsake the word of God. Another note. Adam was with her and took the fruit that Eve gave to him. It's interesting. When the serpent is talking in this first part of chapter 3 and it says... Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? When, when the word you is used there, it's actually plural. If you, if you go directly to the original languages. In other words, when we combine that with the end of verse 6 where it says her husband who was with her, it's very logical to say Adam was right there the whole time and did nothing. And not only didn't do anything, but he took of the fruit passively and ate of it. Two reasons it's really important to recognize this. One, Adam, get this, was not tempted by the serpent because the serpent was talking to the woman. Adam sinned willfully after his wife gave him the fruit. The serpent is talking here. Adam is, we can digress from this, that Adam is passively hearing this. And upon seeing that nothing happens to the woman that God has given him, he goes, "Eh, can't be that bad. I'm going to eat of this too. But the second reason, this is really an important note to make theologically. When did God give the command not to eat of the tree? God gave that command to Adam before the woman was ever created. This is really significant. Because even though the woman ate of the tree first, God had given the responsibility to Adam. Have you ever wondered why the virgin birth of Jesus is so significant? There's many faith groups that wrestle with this because they go, how can Jesus, considered a perfect being, be born of a sinful woman? Because sin didn't enter the world through woman. In fact, nothing happened until who ate the fruit? Adam. This is exactly why it's so important that we recognize Jesus was born not of man, but of God. Because if Jesus had been born of a human father, he would be born into sin, just like you and me. In fact, Romans chapter 5 that we read just a bit ago emphasizes this, that death entered through one man. And in the same way, righteousness enters through Jesus. Now crippled by fear, they hide. While not physically dead, they now experience a reality of separation from God that they had never 
experienced. As soon as they realize in the midst of all that's happening that their hiding is of no use to the God who created the world they're living in, they come out and immediately try to justify themselves. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And he said, this is Adam speaking, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man, at that point, guys, all right. At that point, he should have just said, yes, I did. But no. The man said, the the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. Once again, brothers, I will communicate to you directly. You are responsible for you. When you make a poor choice, it is no one's fault but your own. And brothers, if you are husbands or fathers or you simply are in your work environment, if you mess up, own it. Own your mistakes. Don't be like Adam. This is like one of those cartoons you might see where he says, Adam... Didn't own up to his mistakes. Adam disobeyed God and fell into sin. Don't be like Adam. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, Sisters, own up to your shortcomings. Own up to it. But no, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the, it's the fault of the deception. Remember what we talked about, the serpent can only deceive. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head And you shall bruise his heel to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you to Adam. He said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat Eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There should be a weighty pause that comes when we finish reading these verses. This is our heritage, family. The sin we face today is a direct result of a choice we continue to make to walk in our own way rather than the Word of God. There's two questions I want to close our time with. And they're two questions that I encounter a lot in this present day. 
When we think about this narrative and we think about the truth of Adam and Eve in the garden and sin being brought into the world in disobedience to God's word. Here's the two questions. The first one I I get a lot. And it's this. Why did God give them the choice? This is a big hang up for a lot of people. If God exists, why does evil exist in the world? I would I would guess many of you have faced that question from people before. This God you profess to believe in exists. Well, why, why is all this happening? A good God wouldn't let this happen. So we have to come back to Genesis and go, why did God give the man the choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge good and evil? Here's the simple answer to a very complicated entity. God desires relationship with man. If you take away the choice to walk in disobedience, you also take away the choice to do anything else. To illustrate this, I'll give you an example. Uh, This is primarily an example that's targeted at young families. Um, There's hard days sometimes when you have young kids. Um, but this could also apply to uh, to those of you who are teachers in the school system. How many of you have ever had a day where you're like, man, if I could just like give them a pill that would cause them to be perfectly obedient right now. How many of you have had that thought that you're like, yes. OK. Now, here's the thing. While we might jump at an opportunity like that on a hard day. Imagine a situation where they take that and forevermore they are just perfect, obedient, loving children. At the onset of that, you might go, wow, this is amazing. I'm getting so much done. I, I, my child just listens and obeys and they, they come up, they hug me, they say they love me all the time. This is, this is amazing. As time goes on, you would start to realize this isn't genuine at all. Because I've removed the ability for my child to choose to be in relationship with me in the way I want. And instead, I've forced them to live a certain way. And you would recognize in that moment that that relationship is void of any relationship at all. Because when I remove the ability for them to choose against my will, I also remove the ability for them to choose to love and cherish time with me as their, as their father. Whew. And when we step back and we look at it from that perspective, all of a sudden we see... Why did God put the tree in the garden to begin with? Because without a choice to sin, there is no choice, period. We have this glorified idea that if the tree hadn't been there, that, man, we would have just lived in perfection all the time. Yeah, you wouldn't have known it because you would be a robot. You would be unable to do anything other than exactly what you were programmed to do. Over and over again, God has shown mercy and forgiveness. His patience endures to this day. 
And so in the midst of wickedness and evil around us, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient, desiring that all would reach repentance. That's God's desire. The second question comes at the foottails of all of this. Okay, if I see and agree that there's no, without choice, there's nothing. Okay, so now we're going to have people who choose to walk in contrast to what God's desired. So is there any hope? And I'm happy to say there is. And it's right here in Genesis 3. Two things. The first one in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity. This is God talking between you and the woman. And between this, he's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some of your translations for the word offspring there might be seed. The reality of this is offspring is really the the focus point of that. There's many studies that have been done on that. In other words, God is speaking to the future and saying there will come a day when your offspring will crush your head. In other words, that the serpent will be defeated. And that's reiterated in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 20. This passage theologically has been referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which stands for the first gospel, the first glimmer of hope. And then the second place where we see that there's hope in the midst of a really dark situation is in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Many people miss this in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3. After man had sinned, God had every right to wipe mankind off the face of the earth, but he didn't. And in fact, God takes a life-preserving step and says, Man is now separated from, uh, from me. And if he eats of the tree of life, he will permanently be in a state of being separated from me. And so God drives them out of the garden so that they might not remain in their sinful, separated state for all eternity. Fast forward to Jesus who fulfills Genesis 3.15 and the promise to be the one who ultimately will defeat evil and wickedness for all. And then in the midst of that, offers salvation in Himself. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God in Christ Jesus. How can I know this? How can people know this hope? By knowing what God has already said, it's so clear. Our most effective weapon against sin is rightly handling the Word of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, and we prepare to close with this last song, I want you to turn with me to Romans 5. We read a portion of this earlier. And I want to just come back to, come back to this.
Because this just connects the dots and answers the question, is there any hope? And rather than me trying to explain that, I'd rather have the Word of God do that clearly and you to hear it clearly. Romans 5, I'm going to start in verse 12. And I'm just going to read this and we're going to pray. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May you rest in the hope that there is salvation present and future only in Jesus' name. There is no other way but through Jesus. Father, as we consider this truth and we consider the weight of sin upon the world we live in, we are grieved by what we see. And yet, Lord, we recognize that Your Word is true and You have called us to rightly handle it for Your glory. Open our eyes to see how we can walk faithfully in Your truth that Your church might be the vessel by which our community and the world around us encounters you and experiences peace and joy and hope that they cannot find anywhere else. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.